This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to writer and researcher Joey Ayoub. He has a very good understanding historically and context-wise of the Lebanon protests which have been going on for two weeks right now. Joey's been on the ground for these protests, he's still there, he's in Beirut. So he's going to give us an idea of where they've come from and what he thinks is going to happen next. It's also worth mentioning that these protests are different, they are not sectarian yet although there have been uh, various paramilitaries beating up protesters. Joey himself was actually punched up a bit. So yeah, he's going to give us an idea of what's going on. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash popularfront. So I know a lot has happened recently uh, with the protests in Lebanon, but maybe if we go back to the start, and tell us, how did this all happen? How is it that everybody came out onto the streets and started these protests? So, it, obviously, it's a combination of things. It was There's a lot of media focusing on the so-called WhatsApp attacks. Uh, essentially, what happened is that two weeks ago, uh, Monday, two weeks ago, uh, there, were, there were very, very, very bad wildfires that spread across the country. And within the span of something like 48 hours, we lost more or less our annual average. So, that's about 3 million trees. And that's in a, in a very, very small country. So we sort of doubled our yearly average of uh, tree losses in just 48 hours. And a big reason of why that happened, the main reason why that happened, is that there was no maintenance by the government of three helicopters that were donated to them some like a decade ago or something. And that were just sitting uh, at the airport because they, hadn't, they had ac- actually allocated a budget for it, but they hadn't actually uh, gone through with it. And so what ended up happening is uh, people obviously uh, had to flee their homes and it was quite a lot of chaos. There's one person who, who suffocated to death and uh, it's just volunteers that stepped up. So you had the civil servants who are not full-time staff, they're all volunteer forces. You even have uh, firefighters, uh, volunteers as well from the Palestinian camps and just day-to-day volunteers, you know, just random civilians trying their best. They are the ones who put out the fire, in addition to the aircraft that were donated uh, by Jordan, Greece and and, um, Cyprus. And we got lucky because uh, within 48 hours it started raining. So that's actually what, if you want, turn them off fully. So it could have actually gone much, much worse than that. And instead of, uh, so there was already a lot of outrage uh, then. And instead of dealing with that, uh, the next day the government decides to, or at least announces... Uh, it wasn't a newspaper, it wasn't like a, any official statement from the government, uh, that's how we learned first, that they were going to impose this WhatsApp tax. So it's not just on WhatsApp, it's on any uh, online-based uh, phone calls and stuff, but WhatsApp is just the most popular one, so it's called WhatsApp tax, unofficially anyway. Mm. And that's sort of uh, galvanized, like, that's really what was, as you know, people have been saying time and time again, like the saw that broke the camera's back. And that same night, you had thousands and thousands of people who got down to the streets. And what was extraordinary about it, and obviously I think we'll talk about it more, is that it was so decentralized. And so that's sort of the background. That was the the first night, uh, literally two weeks uh, ago now. It was a Thursday evening. And uh, that kind of took a a momentum of its own. Right. And Joey, you've been on the ground covering these protests. You were amongst it. 
Um, you know, what what are you seeing there? From what I've seen, just from the research I've done, it seems like it's not sectarian and is, you know, more of a genuine people's kind of uprising. Would you say it's accurate or, or not? Yes, that, that is accurate. That, that's really the main uh, difference between uh, now and past protests. I've been involved in protests since more or less 2010. Mm. And while there have always been an anti-sectarian element to these kinds of protests, those that are anti-government uh, or at least those that are not organized by the political parties, let's say. So the independent kind of protests have always had a sort of uh, pro-secularism, if you want, or, at least, or anti-sectarian, more overtly, more overt kind of anti-sectarian, uh, in its, uh, sorry, politics in its nature. But the main difference this time is that A, Beirut isn't necessarily the center of the revolution. So many people are saying it's a combination of Tripoli in the north and Nabati in the south. And uh, this, uh, which in, in the second point, which is related to this, is that it is decentralized. So it's not centered on Beirut. In 2015, we had uh, pretty big protests as well. And I was involved in those. I think on the biggest day, we, we got some more, something like 150,000 uh, people on the streets. Uh, and remember, that's in a country of something like 5 million people. We don't actually have an of- official census, but that's more or less the, the population in Lebanon. Yeah, it's a huge percentage. Yes. Uh, and that was in 2015. What we managed to do last Sunday, not this one, the one before, uh, was uh, bring down something like a million and a half people on the streets. Uh, and so the, there's quite like that's 10 times as many, if you want to put it that way, for, compared to 2015. And that's that's all 100 uh, percent spontaneous. There are people organizing on their own, but you don't have, uh, you know, one Facebook page like there was in 2015. You don't have people saying we have to do this now. We have to. Do-. There's a lot of negotiations and discussions that are happening on the streets uh, which sometimes slow things down but other times just make things much much faster which is basically what we're seeing now so yeah it is very very much anti-sectarian and regardless of everything that has happened in the past two weeks many of which hasn't been obviously very good the overall trend is very new and that's why i think there is still some kind of hope even two weeks in and you know you have people who are tired and everything but there is still the momentum is still on our side, if you want. Yeah, um, to give people an idea why it's so important and so good that it isn't sectarian right now, maybe you can give us a bit of an overview of the kind of sectarian nature of uh, you know Lebanese politics to give some context. I know that's a big ask, but like maybe you can give us some rough idea. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean. You can really start, at, at, like, you can choose a random date and start with this. Like, you can start in the 1860s, you know, even under the Ottomans and then under the French mandate uh, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire uh, and then after, after independence, Lebanon had this thing called sectarianism. So officially it's called confessionalism. Now, obviously, I'm simplifying here. It changed a lot. It's, it's not the same as it was 100 years ago and so on. But, you know, very, very long story short, in 1975, a civil war erupted. And it lasted until 1990. So it was 15. It's actually not, it wasn't just one war. It was multiple wars in one, multiple conflicts in one. But overall, it's called the Lebanese Civil War. And so in 1990, it officially ended. They signed the Ta'if Agreement in 1989. Ta'if is the city in in Saudi uh, Saudi Arabia. And just a few days ago, actually, was the 30th anniversary of that agreement, which is rather symbolic. And as we're talking today... And we'll talk about it in a bit. As we're talking today, it's the three-year anniversary, if you want as well, of uh, the current president's term. And he has three more years to go, supposedly. So Ta'if ended the civil war. 
But what it also did was, uh, well, a number of things. One, it passed an amnesty law. The parliament passed an amnesty law in 1991 that uh, forgave most crimes committed during the war. So many of the warlords, uh, the sectarian warlords, that were the leaders of the war, including, for example, the current Speaker of Parliament, Nabih Bere, who's the leader of the Amal movement, he has been in Parliament, he has been the Speaker of Parliament since 1992. Uh, the current President, Michel Aoun, was a general of the army, during, uh, especially in the 80s, that was his, his heydays, if you want, and until he was forced into exile at the time by the Syrian regime in 1990. The current leader of the Lebanese forces, and so if I if I should mention sects because obviously it's relevant to the story, Nabih Beri is Shia, Michelon is a Maronite Christian, Samir Jaja, the current leader of the Lebanese forces, is a Maronite Christian, Walid Blood, who is also a former warlord, is a Druze, and the leader of the Progressive Socialist Party it has nothing much to do with socialism, but that's just what it's called. Uh, I can honestly go on and on and on. I, I named like half of them now. And so the, the general idea is that you can only organize yourself politically, in effect, through your sect. That's essentially what, what it means, in effect. And so this, the, and the president has to be a Maronite Christian, the prime minister has to be a Sunni Muslim, and the speaker of parliament has to be a Shia Muslim. And then you have like the head of the, the army and these ministers and everything gets done according to a sectarian quota. And so obviously uh, you don't have anything that might be called, for example, a technocratic government or, you know, someone you don't get elected based on your skills or based on whether you're popular or not. You get elected by a combination of how many votes you can get. That's one thing. But also uh, how limited the votes can be in the first place. So not everyone can vote everywhere because of the sectarian quota. Right. So it's almost like by trying to stop one group having power or one sect or tribe or whatever they've actually then resulted to like like controlled sectarianism almost yes they they are very much on the same side of one another and the the example the best example i can give you is the 2016 municipal elections in beirut uh where you had literally on one side a campaign called beirut Madinati, which is beirut my city Another, which is what, so they were their own list of candidates. There was another list called Muatinun um, Muatinat, so citizens, if you want, let's call it this way. And that was also independent. And then you had the whole government. The whole government was the other, the other list. They called themselves the Beirutis, Bierte. And it was literally the party of Saad Hariri, the party of Mishanon. The party of uh, Jmail, of uh, the Lebanese forces, I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting, the Amal, I'm sure I'm forgetting some of them. They, every single one of them, without any exception, either was in the list or was supporting the list. Against a bunch of architects, engineers, teachers, uh, one movie director. Just really, those people were such a threat in Beirut that the whole establishment had to rally against it. That's how fragile it is. Right, so with that in mind, do you think the government is taking the protests seriously? Do you think they, they really see them as a threat? Yes, very much so. And they have been, acted, they have been acting accordingly. Um, the biggest manifestation of that has been the, the, the Shabiha, as we call them in Arabic, which, I mean, I guess you can call them government thugs or something. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, namely, most notoriously Hezbollah and Amal, 
uh, both on the same uh, on the same. They're both part of the government and they're 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 sort of allies. Um, I will say sort of allies with all of them because it's never fully certain how strong the partnership ever is. But they are as of now allies, and they have been sending their uh, men, obviously all men, uh, to beat people up. Uh, I was beaten last week, last Friday. Uh, journalists were beaten a couple of days ago, much badly than I was. Uh, it was it was brutal. Some of them had knives. Some of them, you know, had sticks. The point is not really to kill anyone. The point is just to scare the shit out of everyone and intimidate everyone. Right. That was in Beirut, but I've seen it happening in the south. I think it was Amal doing it down there, right? So it's you know it's everywhere. Exactly. Sur, uh, which is Tir in English, and Nabatiya. Uh, they haven't done it in Tripoli in the north, for example, because they don't really have influence there. And that's why you're seeing Tripoli uh, being sort of the heart of the revolution right now. They are the ones who are managing to maintain large amounts of protesters every single day. Uh, almost every single day. And so uh, it's good that you, you brought up Nabatiya and Sur in the south because they are actually dealing with much, much worse than what Beirut is dealing. And this is very important. The, what the protest, uh, the main advantage that Beirut has is that it has a shit ton of people who are filming everything. And it has better internet, even though it's not that good. Lebanon has one of the slowest internets in the world. But it has better internet than the rest of the country. And so many of the, you know, media organizations, obviously, many of the journalists and activists and these people are there. It's very, very difficult to hide anything that's happening in Beirut. Whereas in Nabatiya or in the south, where there is, you can't really say that there's a government in, in itself. The government is, is the sectarian political parties, uh, Hezbollah and Amal in this case. They can essentially do whatever they want in practice or, or in theory. What has been extraordinary is that despite the brutal repression by the Shabiha, you still had people in these regions take to the streets almost every day, sometimes in larger number than before the repression. Sometimes the repression like, would do its job in the sense that the next day you don't have as many people. But it's kind of on and off. It's very, very difficult to just wake up one day, open up your TV, or if you're in Beirut or other, uh, some of the cities that have protests, and decide how today is going, and just guess how today is going to be like. You can't really predict that. Right. Um, I know you said that these protests are kind of decentralized, but there must be some kind of structure to them. You know, How do people get out? How do they come and you know, get on the streets and know where to go? How does it manifest, if you like? So a lot of it is via social media. Uh, Facebook and Instagram are very popular. You have a, lot, a number of stuff being used on WhatsApp as well, um, which is also part of the risk because there's a lot of disinformation and fake news being spread around. Uh, and you have, uh, to a lesser extent, on Twitter. Uh, and other than that, you do have uh, uh, two private TV stations, uh, LBC and Al Jadid, that are more or less covering everything. And so it is relatively easy to... Not, I shouldn't. Uh, yeah, I, I should emphasize on relatively easy compared to Iraq, for example, in Iraq, to know what's happening on the ground, to know what's happening more or less within a few. Like I know what's happening more or less within a few seconds of after things have started happening, at least a few minutes. And so it, it, it's a combination of the fact that they haven't really cut off the internet yet. So I don't know if they will do that. If they do that, it will complicate things because Lebanon doesn't have any public transport. Everyone travels by car. Or there are a few bus lines, but they're not necessarily very efficient. So everyone travels by cars. You don't have a train. There's no metro. There's no tramway. There's none of that. And if that's part of the reason why I should say that it's been so difficult up until now to do anything, 
because the regions are so effect even though it's such a small country the regions are in effect very cut off from one another so if i live i live in mount lebanon other than going to beirut if i if i work in beirut i work online but if i worked in beirut there is no real reason if you want unless i have family relations to go to the north or the east or you know the south or whatever you go where your family networks are usually and so the country is very divided by default part of and uh, because of this whole system which goes back to sectarianism almost everything goes back to that when i, I was i've only been i know like nothing you know about lebanon i was only there once this year but but one thing i did notice despite the sectarianism i thought that the youth seemed to be quite unified like they don't really buy into it all you know at least from what i experienced just in my time in beirut um i don't know do you think that's helping or am i completely wrong there no it is uh like just a few minutes ago before we started speaking i was reading an article from 2014 and by this by by a blogger called uh, the blog is called mullah hazard and th- he said something very very important and that's from 2014 so just to show you how like we've known all of this like for decades it's not not none of nothing that's happening now is really new in itself in the sense of what we're learning we just know what the problems are and it's just the first time that we're actually acting on it but anyway he said back when there were uh, going to be the elections their programs are of the civil war era the parties are of the civil war era the lawmakers are of the civil war era the absence of parliamentary elections is of the civil war era and even our former overlord is of a civil war era overlords are from a civil war era so there is a gigantic generational gap a gap to say the least now but that doesn't mean that everyone who's a millennial or you know generational z uh, is secular or anti-sectarian you do have sectarianism that is being passed down through the generations but the difference is that for us it's not based on something that we have seen we did not we were not attacked by the israelis i mean 2006 is is the exception here obviously there was the war but it's not it wasn't 15 years long like during the civil war or by the syrians or by other sectarian parties depending on the different episodes of the war and so you don't have this kind of xenophobic sectarian whatever kind of build up that you just grew up with like our parents did so that's a big difference at the same time we are still trying to fix a system that was created essentially during the war we're trying to fix a system that was just dumped on us and with no real i, I call i honestly I, I don't call ourselves the post-war generation i call ourselves the afterthought generation whereas there was no real calculation of what this would mean for people to come because lebanon and maybe we can talk about this since it's relevant in 1990 or 89 1990 lebanon was sort of just sacrificed geopolitically speaking there was the build-up to the gulf war they wanted the americans wanted to have syria on their side obviously and basically the deal that happened is that syria would take over lebanon so to speak and lebanon the civil war would end and syria is the reason why the civil war ended essentially like hafiz al-assad invading the presidential palace where mishnahan was at the time he had self-elected himself as as president self-appointed himself as president uh you know he went into exile the war ended but what kind of end was that it wasn't an end where you had any kind of reconciliation no you still had the occupation of israel in the south and you still had essentially a de facto syrian occupation everywhere else in lebanon and that continued until 2005 and so we're talking about a whole sort of structure, a number of structures that at no point really take into consideration what they do to other people. 
they have their own internal lives. They have their own raison d'être. They just create their own momentum and they go with it. Right now, Hariri has resigned, yes, but I'm very skeptical as to whether he's really gone. I don't know if he will just be reappointed and then they just reshuffle a bit cabinet and they might think, well, maybe enough time has passed because they're playing a waiting game. It's only been two weeks in the end. Uh, they, you know, reshuffle the, some ministers here, something here, maybe someone who's less bad as telecommunication or whatever, and they hope that it just calms people down because we already have an economic crisis as we're speaking. And people are terrified. They're terrified that the local currency is pointless. People are, uh, there are shops that are only uh, accepting US dollars because they're not accepting the local Lebanese pounds because of the risk of devaluation and so many other things that I honestly barely understand. And it's getting to the point where it's, it feels like a waiting game. The government is just trying to wait and wait and wait. From time to time, they release some statement here and there in the hope that maybe they might give some uh, concession, some, you know, some reforms, maybe, or some promise of reform anyway, and they hope that this will calm things down. And what was the reaction from the protesters to uh, Hariri stepping down? So more or less just uh, celebratory, to be honest, even in his, and this is what's uh, amazing, when Hariri uh, uh, resigned, there were uh, celebrations in Saida and in Tripoli. Where he is supposedly, where supposedly he gets his support from. Isn't Hariri from Tripoli? Yes. And yeah. uh, no, he's from Saida, sorry. Uh, but he, yeah, but I mean, you know, from is one thing, but where your power actually is, is really wherever you get it. Uh, where you're from in Lebanon is such a complicated story, to be honest. I'm not from where I live, officially speaking, but at the same time, I've never been where I'm originally from, for example. <laughs> It doesn't it doesn't mean anything, honestly. It's a patriarchal thing, but yeah. Uh, so there were celebrations, but there's also skepticism because he was already the weakest link. He's the weakest link in this government. And w- because this government is composed of the free patriotic movement, i.e. the president and Gibran Basile. But the president is Michelon. Gibran Basile, the foreign minister, is his son-in-law. So you can get a sort of... Uh, there's a very, very Trump-like uh, situation in that party. And uh, other than that, uh, you have the Amal movement. So Nabi Hiberi, the Speaker of Parliament that I mentioned, has been in power since 1992. And of course, Hezbollah uh, and uh, its leader, Hassan Nasrallah, becoming kind of the kingmakers, in a, sen- in a sense. And Hariri got uh, a deal back then, and he got his uh, government, as they say, because the Prime Minister, you, you might say it's his government. But I mean, in practice, it's different. Uh, and he got his deal and he got accepted through this deal. But what ended up happening is that this was a very unpopular deal among his supporters. And he just, anyway, he went with it anyway. He sort of took a gamble, if you want. So he is losing popularity. None of these people, you might say, with the exception of, uh, I wouldn't say, uh, no, actually that's not to scratch that. They are popular with their own base. But I would say that their influence, even within their own base, is weakening. And that's kind of the, the optimistic interpretation of what's happening, if you want. Um, I, I speak to people in Lebanon, they're saying that it's, what, like the second time he's resigned. What's that all about? I think that's actually the third time he resigned. I, I lost count. Okay. I mean, uh, he was forced to resign back when he was uh, kidnapped by, uh, you know, MBS. Yeah, I remember that. It was so weird, man. It was very weird. It took everyone by surprise. It was sort of a joke at, in the end. And But like with everything, these politicians seem to be kind of fine with being jokes. Like, honestly, I don't, I don't think they care that much as long as they get to maintain 
their power or i mean i don't know what goes through their heads to be honest but yeah that that did happen so it's it's kind of weird that sometimes we actually forget that that happened um he was forced to resign on air and then uh the president refu refused and said you have to give it uh uh like in person because he was in saudi arabia when he resigned and uh man so many things happened long story short he ended up going Macron had to intervene and then they got him to France and then from France he went back. It was so ridiculous. And uh, in the end he unresigned. So there is a joke that like, oh well, he, he has resigned so many times he might just unresign again. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's madness. Like, if that was me, I, w I wouldn't have any faith that he's actually going to stay away this time, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I just think the, the victory in a sense is that he was actually forced to even make that decision. So it's kind of, we're, we're kind of I mean, it depends on who you, sp you speak to, obviously. This is just my, my, my opinion, my interpretation. But this is a marathon. Like, it's not going to change. You're not going to change a system that's 30 years old, much older than that, obviously. But the one that we've known after the war is 30 years old. You're not going to change it in two weeks. That's not going to happen. These warlords, especially the ones that have been like Nabi Hiberia since 1992 in government, they're not gonna relinquish power. It's not gonna happen. I really do not believe that's gonna happen. And Nabi Hiberia can count on a um, percentage of his followers. I wouldn't say all of them, maybe not even a majority. I don't know. But there is a significant percentage of his followers, followers like with Hezbollah on their side, that are willing to answer any order he gives them. Any order. Go beat them up, beat women, beat children, beat the elderly, destroy tents, anything they will do it because there will always be some internal uh, justification. These people are, they have called us Israeli agents, uh, paid by the Americans, paid by the Saudis. The, I heard this is a gay conspiracy. Um, so many, man, so many different things on so many different levels. That it's, it's a bit, they, they even brought up uh, the Soros conspiracy. So they're kind of uh, tapping into this whole um, global uh, anti-Semitic uh, trend if you want they have been using really anything that's available to them to just spread on whatsapp and on facebook and these things spread like wildfire as you know and it's just very easy like i had the guy who punched me a hezbollah guy who punched me last week i could see in his eyes that he probably genuinely thought that i was the enemy and this is obviously it's very depressing but i tried to speak to with a number of them and you can just see how how disconnected from reality they have become and i am not saying that i'm not saying this lightly they are facing the same kind of economic uh, problems that everyone else is facing if anything they have it even worse than quite a significant part of the population but the interpretation of it doesn't get uh, thrown on their sectarian leaders it gets thrown on the other sectarian leaders and you can sort of do this endlessly you can always throw it on the other sectarian leaders and never on your own sectarian leader because your sectarian leader loves you and everything is fantastic and so on and because beirut and lebanon beirut is just a microcosm for lebanon for me and when i mean beirut i also include its suburb so dahye is not technically part of, but dahye just means a suburb in arabic but it's a suburb of uh, beirut so i just counted as part of great beirut in this case just to talk about this you don't have day-to-day -day, uh, interactions necessarily between someone from Dahi and where I live. You might if you have family connections, but you don't necessarily have to otherwise. You go to work, you go to families, you go home because there's no public spaces. 
you don't have a public you have tiny ones but they don't they don't really do much you don't have huge spaces like you know the parks in london uh or whatever where people just go there for the whole the whole purpose of it is just to sit down with friends and get to see life as it is just see public space without having to pay anything that's something that here the pub the de facto public spaces is where we go at someone's house to meet or we go to the cafes or anything so it's not obviously public spaces and so this ties into one another and then if you had we haven't even we haven't even spoken about this the media system in lebanon you have a couple of private ones then you have some that are allied like the pan-arab ones you know al jazeera arabia and stuff and then you have the sectarian ones the sectarian ones are overtly sectarian and openly obviously allied with their parties Al Manar is owned by Hezbollah and 100% funded by Iran. Uh, MTV is allied with the Lebanese forces. OTV literally means orange TV and orange is the color of the free patriotic movement. And the CEO is, I think, is a son-in-law of the president or something. So it's not like it's not hidden, you know, it's very much out in the open. And they get to say what is happening according to their own interpretation and obviously their interpret I'm, I'm using interpretation very loosely here but their disinformation campaigns obviously benefits their their side their, the, which is the government right now and they are the ones who are spreading all of these uh, propaganda and disinformation so if you are you know in Dahi and your family or yourself you only watch Manar all day this is going to they are going to tell you and I've seen some of them they're going to tell you that this is linked to a conspiracy that is also what's happening in Iraq. So it's all an anti-Iran conspiracy. Obviously, Israel is behind it somewhere, somehow. <laughs> it's always the Jews, man. Always, always, always. And there's, I mean, on, that's why they mentioned Soros as well. It's not like they chose a random billionaire. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if, if that's what you have been fed for two weeks now, I mean, it's been obviously longer than two weeks that they've been fed the same thing, but especially now with the protests, you might just see what's happening on the ground as you know an attack on your identity some of the hezbollah and amal people who were attacking people a few days ago uh and destroying the tents and you know those those quite depressing scenes that we we saw they were saying things on television they were yelling everything was live they were saying things like men are fucking men they were saying things like everyone is smoking hash which was which is very ironic because hezbollah and amal are in the drug trade everyone knows that yeah big time big time uh, you know, they have been getting drunk, which, you know, it's Beirut, everyone gets drunk. There are yeah. so many different things that you you wonder, how is this being passed on? Is it being passed on by religious leaders? Is it being passed on by the Zoma, which is kind of like a local gang leader? I don't know how to translate Zoma. Zain, sorry, in uh, uh, singular. Zoma is plural. They are being, they are, uh, being fed an in interpretation of Lebanon and of the region and of the world that doesn't correspond with their own economic problems. And so the, the question here is, how long can that last? We're already seeing a crack in the system, so to speak, a crack in the sectarian way of doing things uh, through the protests in Nabatiyyeh. And the fact that in Nabatiyyeh they're chanting for Tripoli and in Tripoli they're chanting for Nabatiyyeh. These are things that we have simply never seen before. And the economic crisis is just starting. Nothing, nothing has been resolved. Nothing has been solved. Nothing of significance anyway. The same billionaires are where they are. The same warlords are where they are. 
And we, for example, don't even know where most of their money is from. Is it even in Lebanon? They have offshore accounts. You know, some of them were listed in the Panama Papers. There are so many issues that are very, very difficult to solve. And until there are even a fraction of them is even solved, I just do not see how these protests are going to end. You are definitely going to see ups and downs. There's not going to be people on the streets every day because they have jobs to worry about and, you know, paychecks and everything. But if things get worse, which I think they will in terms of the economic situation, I just don't see how they will stop. I, they, because at some point it gets to a point where people have not had nothing more to lose. Yeah. Um, do you think the, the security forces will, you know, become more violent? I've seen a few clashes, but like you said, most of it has been from, you know, paramilitary groups. Um, you know, do you think the police, the security forces will get more involved? <sighs> That's a difficult one. So far they have been... And again, I emphasize on relatively. They have been relatively mild. They did throw tear gas at us. Uh, there have been uh, rubber bullets. There have been actual bullets, but sh like shot in the air. It's not like, you know, in Karbala and Iraq or, you know, there, you don't have snipers on the roof shooting at people. Mm. Uh, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm never going to say never say never, so to speak, but I don't think that's a likely scenario. And a big reason as for why that's not a likely scenario is that the government is always paranoid that the army, it's always paranoid of how fragile the army is. So the army in Lebanon, and this is unique in the Arab world, uh, or in the MENA world, the army in Lebanon is not the stronger for strongest force. That's Hezbollah. Everyone knows that. It's like, it's not, it's, not re it's not really a secret. And so when you hear pro-army stuff in Lebanon, it worries me, but it doesn't worry me, worry me as much as it would have worried me, or it did worry me when we heard the same thing in Egypt. Because in Egypt, they could simply become the government. And they did, as we know. In, in Lebanon, it's more difficult. In Lebanon, they're just seen as a symbol of secularism, secularism in that sense. Because the last time the army disbanded, that was the civil war. And then it broke off into its several factions. Now, the army is not perfectly secular. And you have a sort of factions of the army or not really in the army, but sort of in the army, I don't, I don't really know how it works, that are more uh, sympathetic or even take orders from the Speaker of Parliament, for example, uh, Nabih Birke. But they're not really the majority. And uh, yesterday there were clash clashes in Akkar. Akkar, uh, which is a very poor area in the north, uh, north, north of Tripoli, uh, very close to Syria. Uh, Akkar uh, is actually the region that sends most uh, members, uh, most soldiers, basically. They put, they, um, most, uh, disproportionate, in disproportionate amount, sorry, a disproportionate amount of soldiers come from Akkar. And so it's very difficult if the economic situations continue, because these soldiers are also not very well paid. It's not easy to see how, um, I mean, I can think of bad scenarios, but I think the likely scenarios is that this, what we're seeing now is what will continue. Like there's just going to be much more of this, maybe some violence here and there, but I think the bulk of the violence will continue to be the exact uh, same people who have been doing it so far, which is Hezbollah and Amal. Okay, well, let's hope that doesn't happen. Um, Joey, is there anything else you think we should mention before we wrap this up? Um, main thing I would say is that People should pay attention to Lebanon because it's a microcosm of the, of the wider world. A lot of the things that are happening here, um, oh sorry, a lot of things that have been happening in the world uh, have been happening in Lebanon for a long time. Uh, fake news and all of this, like that's not really anything new in Lebanon. Um, so what I would say is that 
one of the reasons why I think people should pay attention to such a small country that's usually over overlooked is that it can provide a in the same way that you have Tunisia sort of paving the way uh, in the sense of what a successful uh, more or less successful anyway way out of uh, the Arab Spring could look like and Tunisia so far is the best example Lebanon could be that example for sectarianism and so this could offer quote-unquote lessons or maybe even motivate people in Iraq that are already doing much more and are sacrificing much more as we as we speak but if there's something successful somewhere this will give some sort of template for others and for those who you know for those who are saying well it can never work here or whatever then you might be able to say well look it's working in Lebanon and it's that sort of thing where that's not really paid enough enough attention to and so many people just think of you know whatsapp tax or whatever but that's essentially the 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 long-term goal so the way i would describe that what's currently happening you have a, an uprising against corruption and you have a revolution against sectarianism that's a great way of putting it my worry is like it i don't know i don't think it would happen but imagine this all became very you know a lot more violent I don't know. Do you think we'd end up seeing militias prop up? I mean, I'm not talking Hezbollah and Amal. I'm talking like new groups just going like, right, we're this group, we're that group. Because there is so many factions, you know what I mean? Yeah, and but because there are so many factions, I don't think there would be new ones. I think it would be just sure. the existing ones uh, becoming stronger. And listen, I mean, that is always a risk. In 2008, Hezbollah literally took over Beirut, like militarily, and parts of Mount Lebanon. Uh, but that's a different story. But there is always that risk. My worry, I mean, everyone's worry, really, is that the politicians, once they find themselves that they have really nowhere else to go, they will try, I mean, they have already tried to play the sectarian game. The good news is that as of now, it hasn't really succeeded. It hasn't really worked. There's something that is broken in a good way. Like there is a way of doing things that is simply not working anymore. And so if they try it again, I mean, when they try it again, I don't know. There might be. It might give some. It might uh, prove to be successful to a limited extent. You know, it might uh, slow things down. It might prove uh, put more obstacles. There might be actual sectarian clashes. Like none of these things are impossible. But I don't think in the wider picture that they are uh, sustainable in themselves. I don't think that they will be able to maintain the same way they're doing things up until now. Yeah, let's hope not. Um... Joey, if people want to follow your work and get hold of you and talk about Lebanon and whatever, what, where where can they do that? Uh, well, I'm 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 only on Twitter, social media wise. So it's just my name, my first name and, and full name. So at Joey Ayub, uh, and on my website joeyayub.com, I just uh, I archive the stuff that I publish uh, everywhere as well. Cool, and it's spell your name as well because some people won't get it. Uh, J-O-E-Y uh, A-Y-O-U-B Okay, brilliant Thank you, mate That was really, really interesting, man I appreciate it Thank you Thanks for your time That was Joey Ayoub Speaking about the protests in Lebanon And where he thinks they might go If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front Please do consider supporting us on Patreon Go to patreon.com Slash Popular Front Honestly, it's the only way we can really stay independent. I don't know if you've been following our kind of saga of getting fucked over um, online, but like everywhere is just getting us. So like the only way we really kind of stay afloat is the Patreon and the merchandise as well. If you go to uh, popularfront.shop, you will see all the merchandise there. But like 
Stripe, the company that was handling the card payments for the merch. They fucked us over, they were holding our money. Like, we nearly got fucked by PayPal, but they've been okay. Instagram is shadow banned us. Uh, go to instagram.com slash popular.front. Like, no one can search for us, you can't tag us on anything. Um, you know, it's annoying. I even got put in uh, Twitter jail for a bit. <laughs> you know, like, it's just annoying, man. But anyway, yeah, so uh, the Popular Front Twitter is uh, twitter.com slash popularfrontco. Mine is uh, twitter.com slash jake underscore hanrahan. Oh, yeah, and this uh, episode was sponsored by thedefensepost.com, defense with an S. Check them out, definitely. Um, probably within a week of hearing this, the new documentary will be up on the Popular Front YouTube. It's called Ad Oil on the Frontline with Hong Kong's Protesters. Um, go to youtube.com slash Popular Front and make sure you hit the bell, subscribe. Again, another big corporation that's fucked us over, YouTube. So we had this saga where like they wouldn't let us monetize our content. So basically, they demonetize, they, they basically, uh, what was the, what did they do? They fucking cancelled demonetization, disabled it uh, on the channel before I even applied for it. So I thought, hmm, that's weird. Like, why would they do that? They age-restricted our stuff, despite there being much more violent content on the big news corporation channel, YouTube channels, um, and they don't get censored uh, or age-restricted at all. So anyway, after a long, long, like, battle with them, they basically agreed, right, you can monetize your content, you know, on YouTube. So I thought, great. So they gave us monetization and then the very same minute made sure that all the fucking videos cannot be monetized. So there you go. So that's what we're up against. So you try and be independent, you just get fucked by everyone. It's tiring, but, you know, we've got to keep going. We've got a lot of support from the community, which is really appreciated. So, yeah, again, if you want to support us and for that support, you know, you get bonus episodes, everything. Uh, go to patreon.com slash popular front. Thank you very much to the following patrons. All this is possible thanks to you lot. Uh, they're Adam Berg, Snyder, Axel Iverson, Azad, Brian McLaughlin, Chad Walker, Christina Rivetti, Christopher Martin, Craig Miller, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, David Gilmore, Dana Gorvanek, Eloise Larson, Emiliano, Emily Molly, Jack Mayhoff, James from the Discord, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Josh, Juan Hernandez, Kay Hardy Roberts, Kyle N. Payne, Lawrence Abrahams, LH, Lika Madik, Moody Al Rashid, Noah, Ari from the Discord, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormack from What Bitcoin Did and Defiance, Hubal, Russia Al Akidi, Rohan Obari, Ryan Sandercock, Scartoon Music, Sebastian from the Discord, Sirushe Hawazi, Stephen Davila, Tom Lochrin, Tony Bin, Vida Provost, and Zachary Hinch. Thank you very much. Again, if you want to support us, patreon.com slash popular front. Music this week, the intro is by Home, and the outro is by Trash Ghost. Uh, his bandcamp is Trash Ghost, but with a zero as the O. Bandcamp.com. Cool vaporwave stuff. Have a listen. Thank you.